This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. If a small flock of cartoon bluebirds didn't help you get dressed this morning, that just means you haven't yet listened to Fine Tuning with Jim Hill and Drew Taylor. No, the black dress slacks, please. Thank you. And now, Jim Hill. Welcome to Fine Tuning with Drew Taylor, your one-stop shop for animation news and commentary. I'm Jim Hill, and it's my genuine pleasure to welcome you all to the very first episode of what Drew Taylor and I are hoping will be a different sort of podcast, one where you can get inside information and unique perspective from two people who've been covering the entertainment industry for a long time. In my case, a very long time one of the very first films that I covered when I was just starting out my career as an entertainment reporter, which was 1986's The Great Mouse Detective. Uh, Drew, what what was the first film you professionally wrote about? You know, I can't remember. I started writing in about 2007, but I remember one of the first big gigs I got was covering the junket for Prometheus, the Ridley Scott alien sequel back in 2012. Ooh. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's cruel and unusual. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, speaking of press events, though, that's actually where Drew and I met. I'm I'm blanking. Was it a Disney feature or a Pixar? Yeah, I'm sure it was one of the come out to Disney and watch 30 minutes of a movie and you don't get to see the rest of it event. You know, I'd read you for so long, though, I'd sent in a why for question years and years ago. So I was truly a a Jim Hill super fan before we met. So I can't imagine your disappointment when we finally met. Anyway, (laughs) one of the reasons Drew and I decided we wanted to do this podcast largely comes out of the way that he and I behave when we're together at a press event. We usually find a corner and then start kibitzing and start trading back and forth pieces of industry gossip that each of us have heard. And given that he's the guy who lives in L.A. these days, Drew's usually got the best up-to-the-minute news. Me, because I'm the old fart who lives at the end of a dirt road in the woods of New Hampshire, I'm, I specialize in history, backstory. But getting back to Ron and John now, what most people tell you is that it was Musker and Clement's second full-length animated feature, the uh, 1989's Little Mermaid, that kicked off the second golden age of Disney animation. But, but to my way of thinking, it was actually The Great Mouse Detective, the movie that the studio made in the wake of 1985's truly terrible Black Cauldron. Hard to imagine an animated film being worse than that. Mouse Detective, to my way of thinking, proved to the world that Walt Disney Animation Studios knew how to make an an animated film that could entertain a contemporary audience. And when I say contemporary, I mean moviegoers in the 1980s who had grown up watching things like E.T., Raiders, and Ghostbusters, films that, that skillfully mix thrills and adventures with humor and heart. What about you, Drew? Do you have a favorite, Ron and John? I love Great Mass Detective and I love Moana, but the movie that I wish I could love in a real way is Frady Cat, which was the comic thriller that Musker and Clements developed for Disney in the mid-2000s. And I think this would have been amazing. It would have been their first CG movie, and it would have been five years before they even started working on Moana. So that, to me, is the like lost classic. Same thing. I have to agree, but... 
a lot of people don't know all that much about Freddy Kid. Can you explain to people what this movie was supposed to be about? In 2005, there was a logline release that was, A chubby house cat with frayed nerves is torn off his comfy couch and dropped smack dab in the middle of a Hitchcockian thriller when he is accused of a crime he did not commit. Then I also found a more sort of elaborate description, which is that Oscar, who's the cat, and Karina, a cockatoo, are pampered, spoiled house pets who live in an easy life in their owner's London flat. However, when a fellow neighborhood pet is kidnapped and Oscar is the prime suspect, the two must set off on a mission to find out who the real culprit is so that they can clear Oscar's name. Now, there were a lot of really amazing people who were working on this movie, including Hans Bacher, who did work for Who Framed Roger Rabbit, The Lion King, Mulan, who did preliminary production design work. And they also had Andreas Deja, who a lot of you guys know as the kind of king of villains in the Disney Renaissance, who did Scar and Lion King and Jafar and Aladdin. And he did character design work. And likewise, Harold Spearman, who designed characters for Tarzan, Emperor's New Groove, and Enchanted, was on the project. And... You know, as I understand it, Ron and John were hoping that Deja, who was finishing animating Lilo on Lilo and Stitch, would then agree to animate the actual, the title character, the Freddy Cat Oscar. It's so funny you mentioned Hans Bacher because on his blog, he actually talks about being offered the opportunity to work on Freddy Cat. And, and what Hans has to say about this project is that when the story research group handed me the rough three-page treatment for Freddy Cat and then asked my, for my opinion of the project, I told them it was the best treatment I had read for a very long time and that feature animation should immediately start to develop this film. To his way of thinking, uh, Freddy Cat was, was almost a continuation of 101 Dalmatians. Uh, he was this charming crime story set in London of the 1960s with, with a little sort of taste or tribute to Alfred Hitchcock's rear window, only with animals. and. I actually got to see some of the concept art for Freddy Cat. This was when Disney had set up a booth at SIGGRAPH back in August of 2005. And at this time, they were trying to recruit computer animators and artists to come work for feature animation. you got to remember, this was the dark days, folks, when Disney had decided that they were getting out of the hand-drawn animation business and they only do CG. And they had this whole slate of computer animated projects lined up. What is it? Chris Sanders' American Dog and Glenn Keane's Rapunzel Unbraided. And, geez, I'm blanking the gentleman who wound up doing A Day with Wilbur Robinson. And, of course, Frady Cat. Ah, uh, what could have been. Yeah, I mean, no. we, we could probably delve into each one of those on future mm-hmm. podcasts. What What's so funny is that didn't Ron and John sort of leave the studio almost right around this SIGGRAPH booth? What's so bizarre is that, you know, and again, it's, it's you know, everyone's celebrating the, the 40 years that John Musker worked at Disney, but the thing they kind of step around is the fact that Ron and John actually left Disney for six months in 2005. They walk out the door because the studio wasn't going to make Freddy Cat, and they don't come back till February of 2006. And this is only because Disney buys Pixar for $1.4 million. And the real reason they come back is John Lasseter, who's now been put in charge of both Pixar and Walt Disney Animation Studio, personally reaches out to Musker. You see, the two Johns had actually gone to school together in CalArts in the mid-1970s. They were both part of Disney's 
fledgling animation training program. And at that time, Lasseter wanted Musker and Clemens to come back to feature animation because when I was at SIGGRAPH, here was Disney setting up this whole CG-only pipeline and, you know, this whole set of CG-only movies. And But here's Lasseter. It's like, look, I want you guys to come back and spearhead the return of hand-drawn animation at Disney. Right. They were ready to finally go into CG and they get brought back to do a hand-drawn feature. Right? Drag me back in. So. Yeah. I mean, because this was like Home on the Range was the last traditionally animated feature at Disney, which was terrible. And it was 2004 that came out. April of 2004. And now remember, that started out as Sweating Bullets, which was this far more ambitious movie. In fact, we were talking just before we got started here. I guess you went off on YouTube and chased all of this info down on it. And it's, don't you find it ironic when you look at the concept art that's out there for this movie that when you look at, for example, what was it? That the idea was that Sweating Bullet was going to be about all these dead cowboys that were presented as skeletons that... When I look at that, doesn't that remind you of Coco? Yeah, I mean, not only that, but the mariachi band. They're like these little bugs that served as the mariachi band kind of narrators. Mm. Not only do they look like Ernesto de la Cruz in Coco with the mustache and the guitar and the sombrero, but they, they also reminded me of the owls in Rango, which oh was a- animated by you know Industrial Light and Magic and was made by Gore Verbinski, who obviously has a long history with Disney, but... <laughs> They look, don't they look a lot like them? Let's be honest here. The animation industry is so incestuous. I mean, no good idea to ever dies at Disney or, or at Pixar, for that matter. And Freddy can't... This was a really good idea for a movie that... In fact, so good. I, I remember talking with Don Hahn about the project. He was one of the people at Disney who really fought for Freddy Cat. I remember once he was nice enough to meet Nancy and myself for breakfast. We, we met him at one of my favorite places in California, Bob's Big boy in Toluca Lake uh, that we refer to that as our as our office there we go oh. yes yeah <laughs> <laughs> and he talked about how he felt that Freddy Cat was one of the very best ideas for a film he'd ever come across at Disney in fact when you know as Ron and John are heading out the door Don is telling them look I'm going to make sure that Freddy Cat is kept on a low shelf at the animation research library, which means that if anyone at any time wants to revive this project, all of that material that's previously been developed for the film is going to be within easy reach. Nobody really talks about how Disney kind of circles back on projects that they might have shelved at one point, but are keen to resurrect again. This has happened time and time again in the history of the company. I mean, Wreck-It Ralph was like that, right? Yeah, but you know, what I find intriguing about Wreck-It Ralph is given that this is the company that made Tron and then Tron Legacy, the fact that those two crashed and burned, that they, they still managed to go back to a, a game or a movie set in the gaming world and, and find a good story to tell there. This goes back to a project called High Score, which was developed in the 1990s, right? And then Joe Jump, which was about a character from an old forgotten 8-bit game that makes his way into a modern console game. And then that got canceled, and then that was resurrected as Reboot Ralph, which was, I believe that was about a hero of a video game, right? Not a villain. There we go. And then that became Wreck-It Ralph, correct? Mm. 
Yeah, and you know the weird thing is the exact same thing happened with the movie version of Hans Christian Andersen's Snow Queen. I mean, Disney has been trying to make they made so many different runs at this fairy tale. I mean, there's a version of this back when Goldwyn and Disney were talking about you know, and this is the 40s. I mean, they're, right. they're talking about making a hybrid film where it's Goldwyn will handle the live action end of it, and Disney will handle the animated. But one sequence in this movie is going to be the Snow Queen. But yeah, that in the decades after that, Disney, because again, they'd had six, such success with fairy tale films. They kept, you know, and there's so few of them that have name value, name recognition. So Snow Queen, they kept making runs at it. They kept making runs at it. And in the end, by the late 1990s, early 2000s, they've given up. In fact, they, they, at one point, they turned to park and resorts and said, the Snow Queen, do you want this thing? Because we're done. And seriously, March of 2006, that there are all these stories out there about how Alan Menken, you know, Academy Award winner, Alan Menken, you know, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, and so on and so forth. He's writing a new musical for Tokyo Disney Seas, one that'll be presented in that theme park's Broadway Music Theater, which is located in the New York Harbor section of Tokyo Disney Seas waterfront area. Just to be clear here, it's it's Disney Creative Entertainment that put this in, in motion. They're the folks who, who do all the shows for the parks. So what's this project supposed to be called? This is a direct quote from one of the articles that ran in the mainstream media March of 2006. Alan Menken is creating a stage musical of The Snow Queen, set to debut next summer at Tokyo Disney Seas with Aman Miyamoto directing, John Weidman as this show's book writer, and Glenn Slater as the lyricist. And if you look on YouTube, you can actually find one of the songs that they wrote for the Tokyo Disney Sea version of The Snow Queen, correct? Yeah, I mean, as I understand it, this was performed by Brian Darcy James at a tribute concert for, for Mencken, and he was sort of giving people a taste of stuff that was about to happen. So this song is called Love Can't Be Denied. In fact, if you go to YouTube right now and type in Love Can't Be Denied, I mean, it's kind of an echoey version of the song, but you can hear it. This is the love ballad from the proposed Tokyo Disney Sea stage musical, and it's actually pretty good. And in fact, so good that... The powers to be at, at Walt Disney Animation Studios, which, again, you know, remember, this is just when John Lasseter, we're, we're talking March, April, May 2006, so John Lasseter's just come through the door, is just taking over Walt Disney Animation Studios, and he hears this music that Alan has written for the Snow Queen, because supposedly Lasseter pulls rank, so he, you know, he goes to Bob Iker and says, the Snow Queen shouldn't start out as an original show for Tokyo Disney Seas, it should start out as a, a full-length animated feature that, that Disney could can then release to theaters, then it can become a show for the parks, and Iger, who wants to make John happy, it's like, okay, so, so he agrees. And this is how Snow Queen then gets jerked away from Disney Creative Entertainment and winds up back in active development at Walt Disney Animation Studios. That's interesting and, and fine, but why did Frozen, which was, remember for a time when it was called Thawed? That was one of the ones that, yeah, they were. Anyway, why was Frozen's score was not, they did not utilize the Alan Minkin, Glenn Slater music, but the... Bobby and Kristen Lopez songs obviously went on to be Academy Award winning, but why the switch? You know, I don't know what to tell you. 
I know that during this same period, this announcement of March of 2006 announces a new eight-year deal with Mencken, and they mentioned right in the middle of this press release how Alan is working on the soundtrack for what's then being called the Frog Princess. And look, okay. you you and I both know who ended up doing writing the music for that. Yes. Randy Newman. So something happened during this period. About the same time, the word gets out about Mencken working on the Snow Queen. We hear about how Tokyo Disney Seas will be closing its Sinbad Seven Voyages attraction that evidently it's got the lowest ridership in the park. And part of the reason of that is it's perceived as a really dark attraction with some really scary scenes. So Oriental Land Company, uh, the folks who actually run Tokyo Disney Seas have decided to do their they're going to make this effort to lighten up the overall mood and story of this Arabian Coast attraction. And and the way they're going to do that is they're going to hire Alan Menken to write this brand new theme song for Tokyo Sinbad Ride. And this is called The Compass of Your Heart. And again, go to YouTube, listen to it. I got to warn you, though, it's an earworm. <laughs> Anyway, revamped version of this attraction opens at Tokyo Disney Seas July 7th, 2007 and is quickly embraced by theme park goers as, you know, it's a they everyone's it's a much improved version of the attraction and a lot of that has to do with Alan's song and what kind of made me crazy was that this attraction, believe it or not, is based on a film that Walt Disney Animation Studios almost made on the heels of Musker and Clement's 1992 hit, Aladdin. The script for Disney's Sinbad was actually written by Ted Elliott and Terry Ruscio, the same guys who worked with Ron and John on the screenplay for Disney's Aladdin. Right, and these guys have a lot of Disney experience, right? They wrote the first three Pirates of the Caribbean, they wrote the first draft of what would become Lone Ranger, a somewhat controversial <laughs> choice, but I enjoy that film, but... I mean, these guys have some pedigree with the Disney brand, right? Absolutely. And honestly, if they had had their way, the movie that Musker and Clements would have made right after Aladdin would have been Sinbad. And Ted and Terry had this really fresh take on the story. So this is the movie that Roseanne Barr and Tom Arnold were supposed to be the villains of, correct? Oh, I love you know that. Okay, cool. Yes. Roseanne is right in the middle of its original nine-year run on ABC at this time. This would have been after Aladdin was released to theaters. So what is that? That's 1992, 1993, fifth season of the show. Roseanne and Tom Arnold are still married at this point. She wouldn't file for divorce from him till August of 1994. You can actually read the 37-page treatment that Ted and Terry wrote for this version of Sinbad. Uh, it's dated February 8th, 1994. So like I said, they got it right in under the wire before they got divorced. But if you go to Rocio's wordplayer.com website, and wordplayer, one word, this is what Ted and Terry have to say about the characters that Tom and Roseanne were supposed to voice in the movie. So we have Giorgio and Yorick. A dual villain, actually a couple. Picture Tom and Roseanne Arnold. She's a gorgon with a head of snakes. He's a knight sent to slay her, but instead fell in love with her. A dysfunctional, bickering couple. They nonetheless truly love each other. Good thing, too, because no one else would have them. Gorgio is rumored to be so hideously ugly that any person who looks at upon her face will then be turned to stone. So she, she keeps her face hidden. In reality, she's quite beautiful with an exceptional melodious voice and a curvaceous body. 
Her head of snakes is very expressive, with each snake having individual characteristics. One grins all the time, one is pissed off, another one has a vapid look. On the other hand, Yorick, his right arm has been turned to stone from that time he peeked at Gorgio's face. He takes offense easily, is always ready to fight in defense of, of his honor or Gorgio's honor, who, again, he's pledged his love to. So what drives these villains in this story? Gorgio and Yorick, they're searching for the Magic Valley of Diamonds, a Brigadoon-like land. There, Gorgio can drink from the Wish Spring and have her heart's desire come true, which is to turn the entire world to stone. Perhaps then, her curse will have the opposite effect, and when she looks in Yorick's eyes, he will come to life and they will be forever united. Hey, we all have our dreams, right? In regard to this film's title character, well, when we initially get to meet Disney's Sinbad, he hasn't finished his seventh voyage. Hell, he hasn't even been on his first one yet. And this is what I love about this project. This is Ted and Terry's, their take on Sinbad. Sinbad is an apprentice map maker. He lives in a world of straight lines and accurate numbers. He has an incredible knowledge of the world's trade routes, ports, gulf streams, reefs, and the like. But it's only book learning. He's never actually been out to sea. Sinbad's cautious, careful nature has resulted in a conventional, stable, secure life, peaceful and risk-free, which he likes just fine. For the greater part of this film's story, his strongest desire is to simply get safely home. But in the course of his adventures, Sinbad's heroic side asserts itself, and he comes to understand that only by taking risks do you have a shot at happiness. And they then go on to sort of describe sort of the the actor templates that they had for this character. So Sinbad is a somewhat arrogant, wise guy character with limited real world experience. Think Joel McRae from Sullivan's Travels or Cary Grant bringing up baby who changes and grows due to the, his relationship with an exceptional free-spirited woman uh, in this movie. Uh, in terms of character quality, Michael J. Fox would be a good touchstone for this character. That's what's interesting, though, right? It's because when Musker and Clements were first working on Aladdin, Michael J. Fox was the original template for that film's character. I can't even imagine what the think pieces would be written about this now with a the whitest man alive being the <laughs> template for an, an Arabic character. But, you know, Alex B. Keaton, which was Michael J. Fox's character on Family Ties, had wrapped up its seven-season run on the TV network in May of 1989, and that's when they were wrapping Little Mermaid and casting around for a project to work on. And while Katzenberg insisted that Aladdin be aged up and made more of a hunk in this new Disney animated feature, and he was eventually modeled on Tom Cruise, correct? Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. They still never abandoned their idea of using Michael J. Fox for their template of Aladdin. And one day, when the studio was working on Atlantis, The Lost Empire, they called Michael in to voice Milo J. Thatch. And the description of Sinbad that you just gave is very similar to Milo's description from Atlantis, The Lost Empire. No, that, that's exactly. In fact, so often these films, the finished films, are, are patchwork. And, and again, it's interesting that Michael eventually did do a voice for Disney because Disney never actually let go of the idea of getting Roseanne to come in with her rather distinct voice and, and doing a voice for an animated film. That's why in 2003 they hired her to be Maggie the Cow in the studio's April 2004 release, Home on the Range. And that's the movie that started out life as sweating bullets there we go and to bring everything together really wrap this up 
that movie, Home on the Range, which I don't really recommend anyone seeking out, was... Oh, come you, on. You, are you a fan? I love Alameda Slims. That sequence is amazing. His okay, musical number go. is amazing, yes. There we go. But, well, that song, which is so good, was written by mm-hmm. Minkin and Glenn Slater, right, who were doing the Snow Queen mm-hmm. musical for Tokyo Disney Sea. And speaking of bringing things full circle... While Disney didn't opt to go forward with their production of that version of Sinbad, largely, supposedly, because Ron and John just felt this animated feature was a little too close to the the style of storytelling that they'd done in Aladdin. And what uh, Musker and Clemens really wanted to do with their follow-up film to Aladdin was a huge departure, something that was literally out of this world or set in outer space. What Ron and John wanted to do as their follow-up to Aladdin was Robert Louis Stevenson's Treasure Island, only this time setting that story in space. They were desperate to make that right after Aladdin, right? I mean, this was their passion project. No, absolutely. But that's not how it shook out. As I understand it, Jeffrey Katzenberg... When they pitched him Treasure Island, and again, I'm going to remember, at this point in the company's history, Jeffrey Katzenberg is is the head of Walt Disney Studios. And so they go in and they pitch him Treasure Planet. And Jeffrey just kind of looks at it and goes, you know, I, I don't think that's really commercial. But tell you what, if we make before that a truly commercial project, like, say, a sports comedy, like, say, something built around the Legend of Hercules... I promise you that once you deliver Hercules, that I will green light production of, of Treasure Planet. Can you just tell me what you told me earlier about who they originally wanted to voice Long John Silver? The original voice casting for Long John Silver on Treasure Planet was Sean Connery. Oh, hey. man. Yeah. I, can, I can picture it now. It would be so cool. Yeah, I know. But what was weird about this period at Disney is that the first voice they went after, and they actually met with him. He came on the lot with his daughter and sat down with Ron and John. That was Jack Nicholson. And the weird part of it is, is he was very enthusiastic about the project. The downside, though, is that Jack wanted his Joker deal again. He wanted a chunk of whatever merchandise money Disney made off of. If they they put anything out there with Hades pictures on it, he wanted a chunk of the money. And and my my understanding is Ron and John kind of blinked back at him and it's like, you understand this is Disney, right? (laughs) they, (laughs) They don't share money with anybody. Right. And you can find that great piece of concept art, too, of, of that Gerard Scarfi did of, of him in the chair with the sunglasses. And it's, he looks it's like he's sitting at a Lakers game. I mean, that's <laughs> what I, I love about that image. So Katzenberg shuts down their idea to do Treasure Planet. Right. Mm-hmm. And then he gets fired in 1994. Mm-hmm. And what does he do when he goes and starts DreamWorks animation was gets his own Sinbad movie off the ground. This was starred Brad Pitt. Michelle Pfeiffer, and it did so poorly that it shut down the traditional animation division of DreamWorks Animation. And from that point forward, they only did CGI films. But you know that the other little weird bend on this story is if you actually read the credits for Sinbad, Legend of the Seven Seas, the the DreamWorks version, who does Katzenberg hire as consultants on this animated movie? Ted Elliott and Terry Russo. Mm-hmm. Like I said, very incestuous world, you know, feature animation. I've also come across a couple of stories here while I was doing research for today's podcast that suggests that 
Maybe it was Michael Eisner who felt that Ted and Terry's version of Sinbad was a little too much like Aladdin. And, and it was Eisner, rather than Katzenberg or Musker or Clements, that prevented this animated feature from going into production. But as the story goes, a version of Elliot and Ruscio's script makes it over to Imagineering. At that time, anyway, they're right in the middle of designing the second gate for the Tokyo Disneyland Resort. And the guys from WDI love what, what Ted and Terry have written so much, they decide to use this film's characters and settings as the inspiration for a massive Pirates of the Caribbean-like ride where guests float by these giant show scenes that are filled with dozens of audio animatronics. And so here we go, Sinbad Seven Voyages. That opens up on September 4th, 2001. And when you understand the pedigree for that attraction, which by the way, when it went through its reiteration with Compass of the Heart being added, they renamed the attraction. It's now called Sinbad Storybook Voyages or something like that. Does that one not have as much resemblance to that original pitch for the animated film? Yeah, they have severely lightened it up. Not only that, it, it, you know, it's so funny. Go online. You can find both versions of the attraction. And what they've done is they've not only shoehorned in this wonderful song by Mencken, but they've actually added a cute little tiger cub to virtually every scene, which, <laughs> surprise, surprise, as you exit through the gift shop, is available for purchase. Right. But, but anyway, given that the, the Oriental Land Company was comfortable with the whole notion of basing an open day attraction on a movie that was never made it, it's then not really surprised that when alan menken and the bunch come at them and say hey this is the snow queen which we tried to make an animated feature but we can't figure out how to do it and would you like to do it at your theme park that they said yes and getting back to stories of never produced features mm-hmm. and Freddy cat if the early version of the proposed ron and john movie was so good and i've seen tons of sort of anecdotal evidence that people really love the work-in-progress version of this movie, then why didn't Disney management opt to actually greenlight and produce it, especially if they had brought the filmmakers back to the studio? Okay, a couple of things. The reason that initially in August of 2005 they didn't make that version of it was the guy who was then in charge of a feature animation, David Staten, all I've been told is he got really bad advice from his senior management team. These folks basically told David that, look, this is supposed to be an animated version of an Alfred Hitchcock movie. Do kids today even know who Alfred Hitchcock is? I mean, who exactly are we making this movie for? I thought this was something for a mass audience that will mostly be made up of kids. Uh, kids who've never seen Rear Window or Psycho or North by Northwest or, Vert- or Vertigo. I mean... Are they even going to get the references or the in-jokes? Do we seriously believe there's enough serious film buffs out there who will then buy tickets to this projected to cost $100 million movie? Wasn't that also when like Universal Studios Orlando was shutting down the Hitchcock... What was that ride called? The like Hitchcock's... Oh, it was a 3D uh, experience. 3D, yeah, yep, yeah, where yep, you'd, yep. you'd see the guy no, that's mimicking the, the, the shower. I mean, that was the exact same time as this decision was being that's made. That's it, exactly. In fact, that, that's the real irony is that they pulled the Alfred Hitchcock movie out and put in the Shrek 4D attraction. And then if we jump ahead to when Ron and John came back through the door, if you look at the newspaper articles in February of 2006 that announced that Ron and John are coming back, They talk about the fact that they had left Disney because the company opted not to make Frady Cat. 
However, at this time, that film is not in development. And basically what had happened was that, and again, this is what's kind of interesting, especially given what just happened with Gigantic. Lasseter, he'd walk through the door and it was one of these things where it's like, look, Disney has, has paid $7.4 billion for Pixar and I want to be responsible here. So I want to make movies for them that make money. And what makes really big money for Disney is a princess movie. So he immediately pivots and is looking over the list of possible princess movies. And here's the Frog Prince, which, uh, you know, again, if you bend a little bit, Frog Princess. So that's what they immediately put in the works. Here's Lasseter coming through the door. And who am I going to trust with this project to do a Disney princess, a fairy tale film? Then, well, God, Ron and John, who made The Little Mermaid, who made Aladdin, who have good solid experience at doing this if this is going to be the film where i bring back hand-drawn animation at disney studios who else am i going to tap here's david staten who says i don't think freddy cat has really strong commercial prospects but back in the early 1990s staten is the guy who brings disney who convinces them to take a, a shot on a real long shot. I mean, he's the guy who actually came to Disney senior management and said, you know, Victor Hugo's Hunchback of Notre Dame, I think that has the great makings of a, an animated musical. And don't get me wrong, I'm one of like five people on the planet who really likes Hunchback, but when oh, that, I love I love Hunchback. Too. Oh, that's that's yeah. great to hear. But yeah, when it came out in June of 1996. People were hopelessly confused by that movie. They did not move a lot of Quasimodo plush. Yeah. But just because a movie isn't a hit doesn't mean that it, it won't become viewed as a classic down the line. I mean, look at what happened with Brad Bird's The Iron Giant. No. When they opened that in August of 1999, which I know you and I both went to opening day to empty <laughs> empty theaters, I'm oh, sure. You could have played handball in my uh, theater. I mean, oh, there, yeah. there were four of us. And this was the 7 o'clock Friday night show. Four people showed up. And it earned, what, $31.3 for the studio? Oh, uh, well, yeah. Which wait. was a bomb because it cost a lot of money. And it, and it was the linchpin of their revitalized animation effort, which sort of began and ended with that and hmm. the genuinely terrible quest for Camelot. Yeah. Um, yeah, so they took a huge loss on that, but now everybody loves it. In a certain subset of folks in Hollywood, you know, the Iron Giant has almost become the secret handshake that if you're talking with a filmmaker and you're trying to decide whether or not you, you want to work together, and it's like, well, what's your favorite movie? And when they say the Iron Giant, is like, okay, I know, we're in. We have this commonality. Now, I haven't seen it yet, but you have. But I have to admit, I'm intrigued by Ready Player One, which, judging by the ads, the Iron Giant figures in prominently yeah he is a main character towards sort of the end of the movie you see him doing some pretty amazing things i don't want to give anything away but i i really love this new steven spielberg movie which is basically an animated movie i, I read today that 90 minutes of its runtime are made up of animated sequences oh completely animated so it's really interesting maybe we, next time we can get into the history of the iron giant and how oh. it has come back in ready player one Oh, I would love that. You know, given that Brad's got Incredibles 2 looming in the horizon, maybe we can use that as an excuse to talk about what Mr. Bird has done as well. Next week, I'm going up to Pixar for a two-day Incredibles 2 long lead day. So hopefully I will not be terribly embargoed and we can talk about 
what Mr. Bird had to say and what the, how this superhero sequel is shaping up. Well, yeah, again, I'll, I'll be intrigued to see what you have to say about that half hour of footage they'll show you. Yes. So they, they always do that. They always tease you. They always, there we go. You, know, you so. got to buy a ticket for the rest of it. Yeah. Well, thank you, Jim, for having me on and oh, continuing no, 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 to have no, me no. on the show. No, so no, excited no. to start this process with you. We've been talking about doing this for years, so it's fun to finally get this thing going here. And, and again, sorry if we're, we're teasing you folks with stories of Iron Giant, but I promise we'll get to that to the next time. But... For myself and Drew Taylor, this is Fine Tuning, and thanks for listening. Be sure to tune in again for another fine episode of Fine Tuning with Jim Hill and Drew Taylor.